Hello, everybody. All right, so I'm the middle school pastor and the young adults pastor, and so I have to do that one more time. Good morning, everybody. That's, that's so great. Well done. The middle schoolers would be proud of you guys. My name is Daniel. Uh, like I said, I'm the middle school and young adults pastor here at Desert Springs Community Church, um, and I actually get to finish out uh, this chapter in Hebrews, uh, chapter 11. So if you wanted to, you can go ahead and open your Bibles and turn to chapter 11 of Hebrews. We're going to be in verse 32 starting there a little bit later. Before we get there, though, I figured um, a little bit of a review uh, makes a little bit of sense because um, it's been a couple weeks since we've been in Hebrews, so I wanted to get our mind back into the Hebrews mindset. Um, the push of Hebrews so far has come from uh, partly the audience. The audience is Hebrews. These are Jewish people who have come to believe in Jesus. So this is uh, believers that the author of Hebrews is talking to. Um, and really, one of the biggest things that the author of Hebrews wants us to remember is Jesus. Sit. From the very beginning, the first chapter, reminding us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. That Jesus is the exact representation of his nature which I love, first of all, just as a quick aside, because when I read stories of Jesus as a human being walking around, I think of all of his interactions with people, all the ways that he treated people, and I think of, well, that's how God would treat people in person, because that's how Jesus treats people. So I just love that, the representation of his nature. And so as believers, when we read Hebrews, um, one of the big pushes is actually just in a sentence that we will only realize our full eternal reward as believers if we appreciate the greatness of Jesus. Now, I want to pause real quick because appreciate is an important word here. We, sometimes we appreciate when somebody does something for us or, um, you know, stocks, bonds, whatever, appreciate in value. But appreciate here has the meaning of understanding the full value of something. And here, we only realize our full eternal reward as believers if we understand the full value of the greatness of Jesus. And this has almost the idea of looking at it from a myriad of different angles, right? Understanding that it's not just once where we accept Jesus, we trust in his life, death, and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins, right? And we trust that Jesus is God, he is man, and he's the only one that can bridge the gap between the two. We trust that. But then from there, talking about reward, talking about living a life trusting God rather than turning away from him, it's a continuous thing. It's not just once. The, the forgiveness is there once and for all, and that can never be taken away, but then the encouragement afterwards is to follow Jesus, to see people the way he sees people, to care about our relationship with the Lord the way he does. And the promise is, look, the best way to live life, the most hopeful way to live life, the most confident way to live life is a life patterned after Jesus. And that's the promise. And so the question when we get to Hebrews chapter 11, at least for me as I see it, is is that a trustworthy promise? Can I take God at his word when the push is following Jesus is the best way to live life? Can I really truly believe that? And that's the question I think that we're taking a look at here today. Um, and we're going to be uh, here in verse 32 in just a second. But I have a little bit of a story for you guys, kind of help set up some of the things. When my middle schoolers hear me say story time, they usually are excited because they hear uh, Daniel is going to tell us a story of how he was a bad kid, and it's going to be funny. And then he's going to tell us not to do the things he used to do. So that's, that's what my middle school is like. But today, thankfully, it's not a delinquent story. It is a good story. So the um, story starts like this. Uh, my dad was in the Navy, and so um, we were stationed at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii at one point in my life. 
which for a lot of you guys is like, oh, that's paradise. For me, it was just regular life. So I don't know, I just have a different perspective on that, I guess. But this particular day, my dad was trying to be patient enough to teach me how to ride my bike. Never done this before, and I was very poor at it to begin with. And so my dad had to have a lot of patience with me. As anybody, I had training wheels to begin, and so what would happen is my dad would, from the uh, driveway where the minivan was parked, um, there is a straight line to the middle of our cul-de-sac, and in the middle of the cul-de-sac was a mailbox, community mailbox, really big, right, made of metal, very hard and sturdy, and that'll come into play a little bit later in the story. And so my dad would push me in a straight line from the driveway into the cul-de-sac because my little legs, I couldn't pedal on my own. So he would push me, and every time he was getting ready to push me, he would say, you ready, son? And, you know, I'd lie, and I'd say, yeah, you know, because I was not ready to do this. I was scared. I had all these pads and everything on. Like, this is a big deal. But every time, he would say, I've got you. Here we go. And then he would push me. And every time, it worked. And he did got me, get me. Because what would happen is, occasionally, um, I would teeter left and right, and I was very skilled at going so far over on one side that the training wheels didn't matter and I would fall over on my bike anyways. So training wheels, you know, let's, let's get a, a redesign on those for people like me. So my dad would run alongside me and he would grab me just before danger, just before I fell over the front or, you know, face planted into the gravel or whatever else. And, and so he would run alongside me and he would grab me. So he was strong enough, I could trust in his ability to pick me up and I could trust in his ability to be fast enough to catch up to me if needed. And that worked over and over and over. And so my dad finally was like, all right, son, we're going to take the training wheels off. And in my mind, I'm like, well, it's day one. Like, shouldn't I do this for at least another six years before we take the training wheels off? Like, that's how it's supposed to work, right? Uh, maybe when I'm 30, I'll take the training wheels off. And he's like, all right, son, here we go. Takes the training wheels off. We're up there at the driveway. The next time that he's going to go, I got you, son. And I look at this man in the eyes, and I think, do you really have me this time? Because the training wheels are off, and this is a whole new ball game. Do you, uh, can, uh, all right, I believe you. So then here we go. I got you, son. And he goes, he pushes me, gives me a huge push, and I go in a straight line, and I'm flying. I'm so excited. I don't know if you guys have ever thought of or remembered when you first rode a bike, just the feeling of, I'm doing this on my own. I'm balancing right in the middle. The wind is in my face, right? And then comes the mailbox. That mailbox gets you so much quicker than you thought it would. So I'm flying, and my dad is right next to me. I can feel him, uh, like right next to me. I can hear him, you know, and he's like, you got it, keep going. And get to the mailbox. The curb is there, bam. Um, but before this, I had the brilliant idea of, I'm going to avoid the mailbox. That makes sense. My idea of avoiding the mailbox was turning to the right as fast as I possibly could. And, I mean, you can imagine how this looks. The wheel goes, but my momentum is forward. The, I go over the front wheel. My face hits the mailbox, and I'm just, like, like right up at the, the mailbox in my face, and I'm all crumpled up, and I'm on the ground. And I'm looking up at my dad, and my lip is all bleeding. And my dad looks at me, and he's like, Are you all right, son? And I look at him, and I'm like, Yeah. You know, my body's all like this, and I'm just trying to get up. And he's like, All right, let me help you up. So he helps me up, and then he's like, Let's go get some ice cream. No, he doesn't, because he's crazy. He says, let's do it again. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So my dad picks me up, takes me over there. We're ready for the next push, and he says again, I got you, son. And at this point, I'm thinking, are you lying to me? Because last time, this was two seconds ago, Dad. You don't remember two seconds ago how you didn't get me? But I'm thinking, okay, my dad is strong enough. He has the ability to 
get me from uh, any immediate danger. And then I started to think, well, but even if he doesn't, last time I learned something, right? Last time I learned I should not turn the wheel 90 degrees immediately to try and turn. From the very beginning of the driveway, I should gradually turn so I can go away from the mailbox and then get around the cul-de-sac all nice and free. So maybe I did learn something. So I can trust my dad because over and over and over, all day, for however many hours it was, eight hours, I don't know, it felt like that, learning to ride this bike. He's been patient with me. He's got me every single time. There was moments when he would grab me from the, the pits of despair, the gravel on the grounds, you know, so I didn't skin my knees or anything. He would get me, and it was awesome. And I could trust him. I could take him at his word. But this time, I thought, even if he doesn't, I can still trust his character. I can still take his word. I can still believe that he loves me and cares for me, and he's not going to let anything terrible happen to me. And last time, I learned a lesson. I learned something from that last one, not to turn the wheel 90 degrees. So I could trust his character. Take him at his word. I think for some of us, that word trust sometimes can lose its meaning, at least for me. I, I can hear that word trust, or I can hear that word, have faith in God, and I hear the exhortation to have faith in God, and I, and I just forget. So I turned to a movie that I watched when I was younger called Peter Pan to remember what trust means. So if you know it, it's faith, trust, and a little pixie dust, all right? Like that's a phrase that always just stuck in my head. Now these people in this movie, Peter Pan, um, they had the real idea of what trust was. They took Peter at his word. Unfortunately, his word said, hey kids, I'm going to break into your window in the evening and I'm going to tell you to jump out the window. Trust me. Take me at my word. And these kids, of course, it worked for them, I guess, because of the pixie dust. But it helps me remember that trust is not, or faith is not some big idea that I can't grasp and that I, ha I don't have enough of. Faith is just taking somebody at their word. So then we get back to the question in Hebrews 11. We get back to the question that I asked myself when my dad said for that last time, I got you. Can I take him at his word? Can I take God at his word in Hebrews saying that the best way to live life is to follow after Jesus? The most hopeful way to live life is to follow after Jesus. Fundamentally, the question is, do I believe those words that God has told us? Or me? Do you believe those words? That that is actually the most hopeful way to live life. That's the most confident that you can be in what tomorrow has for you is trusting in Jesus and patterning your life after him because that's the push of the book of Hebrews and so we get to chapter 11 the hall of faith aptly named because so far in chapter 11 we've seen evidence after evidence of God's faithfulness to his people proof after proof that I've been there for you before what makes you think I won't be there for you again so that we can take God at his word. And so we've seen in chapter 11, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Moses, by faith, Joshua. We see all these evidences, and we get to verse 32, and the author of Hebrews says, and what more shall I say? I mean, that's a pretty good question. It's almost like, what else do you want from me? I've given you all these evidences of how God's been faithful to you, and you can take him at his word. What else do you want? It's great. For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and the list goes on and on and on. Evidence after evidence of how God has been faithful to his people, and we can take him at his word. I love this. You can actually go ahead and uh, turn over to Daniel chapter 3, because that's where we're going to be for the rest of today. But in Daniel chapter 3 is actually where 
this author is talking about quenching the power of fire. I love Hebrews 11 again because it's like a phone book. It's like, hey, you don't believe me that God is faithful? You don't believe me that the best way to live life is following after him? Well, check this whole phone book out. You can call any of these Old Testament people and ask them about God's faithfulness. You can ask any of these people who did all of these things, and they'll tell you evidence after evidence that God's word can be trusted. And so we're going to take a look at just one today. Quenching the power of fire reminds me of this story in Daniel 3 of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, I'm going to pause and ask a question, and I want everybody to respond real quick with a hand raise. Have you seen VeggieTales? Ha-ha! Very good. VeggieTales. So I grew up on VeggieTales, and there was a particular VeggieTales episode of Rack, Shack, and Benny. Okay, so not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So for the duration of today, I'm going to say Rack, Shack, and Benny. And if that really bothers you, I'm so sorry, but go watch it. It's fantastic, and you'll know why I say it. But as a kid, I would remember... Because of Rack, Shack, and Benny and the silliness of Veggie Tales, it's stuck in my head. We're going to start in verse 13 in just a second, but I'm going to give you a little bit of background on what's happening here. King Nebuchadnezzar has taken people captive. So he's the king of Babylon. He's taken people captive from a number of countries, and one of those is Israel. Three of those people that he took captive are Rack, Shack, and Benny. Nebuchadnezzar, I'll tell you a little bit about this guy. He is the most supreme and in charge of any ruler that has ever existed. And what I mean by that is not that he had the biggest kingdom, because certainly Rome was bigger than his kingdom, Babylon, and other things of that nature, but Nebuchadnezzar had the most ability to make a unilateral decision, and nobody would ever question him. Anything that Nebuchadnezzar wanted, went. Anything that he said, goes. Nobody questioned him. So he was the most powerful unilateral decision maker that has ever been in a kingdom. No checks, no balances. So here he is, and he decides, I'm going to make a monument to my power, my authority, my kingdom, the things that I have built. And at this day, if you worshipped gods of different styles, what would happen is, if my god was better and more powerful than your god, I would conquer you, and I'd take your stuff. And Nebuchadnezzar did that, and he won a lot. And so for him, in his mind, his god, his patron, this god is Nebu, and it's where he gets his namesake, Nebuchadnezzar. And so he decides, I'm going to build this giant statue, 60 cubits high, 60 cubits wide, of my god Nebu. Not to worship him, but to show that he's in my corner, on my side, my kingdom. I'm the most powerful, nobody can oppose me. And then he says to all the people in his kingdom, when the music sounds, when the music plays, I want you to bow down and worship this. Not as a symbol of changing your religion or anything like that, but as a sign of fealty to my kingdom, what I have built and so this is like a, you know, political, like, warlike play. Like, he wants everybody to know, I am in charge here. And this God has given me victory after victory, and uh, that's it. So take a look at my kingdom, everybody. Three guys decided not to. Rack, Shack, and Benny. They decide, nope, we're not going to bow down and worship this idol, this fake God that's not even real. We're not going to do that. Nebuchadnezzar catches wind of it because there are some tattletales in his kingdom. And these tattletales, let me tell you about them for a moment, they are the wise people in his kingdom, the advisors to the king. They're supposed to be um, very smart. They're, they're worshiping a ton of other different pagan gods and things like that, and they're supposed to have wisdom. Well, the reason they're mad at Rack, Shack, and Benny and their people, namely Daniel, in chapter 2, God embarrassed them. Nebuchadnezzar said to his wise people, hey, I have a dream, and I want you to tell me what it means. And by the way, I'm not going to tell you what the dream is. You have to tell me. And none of them, they're all like, well, we can't do that. Like, that's not real. We can't tell you what your dream is. Tell it to us and we'll tell you what it means. And he's like, nope. If your gods are so powerful, if you're so wise, you're going to tell me. 
Daniel comes up and he's like, hey, my God, the one true living God, gave me a vision of what your dream means. And he embarrasses them right there. And they're all mad. And so then they come and tell the king as soon as they can, Rakshak and Benny, hey, they're not worshiping. You should kill them. And then in, chapter, or in verse 13, here's what we read. Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Notice again, my, I, this is about him. He's, he's very prideful. He wants this to be about him. Verse 15, Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? If we flip that from a question to a statement, he says, there is no God that can deliver you from my hands. So again, he's not talking about Nebu, his patron God. He's not talking about him. He's talking about me. Nebuchadnezzar, I am strong, I am powerful, my show of force is stronger than any god that exists out there. What a, what a statement to make right now. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Okay, if there was a microphone in this throne room, they would have dropped it right there. Okay, right? Like, we have no need to answer you, O oh, king. Bam. Right? I love that. Because in this statement is a couple of things. For one thing, they're saying, King, you should already know. Remember chapter 2 where our God embarrassed you and your gods and your wise people? Look no further than chapter 2, buddy. You should know that we don't worship other gods. You should know that we worship the one true God. And then on the other hand, <clears throat> our God doesn't work the same way that all of your fake gods work. Your fake gods need a mouthpiece, a human being, to interpret the will of these gods and to say it and to, to twist it to their own meaning and say something that maybe that they hope is good for them. Our God speaks for himself. Our God proves himself. And again, look no further than chapter 2. Spoke for himself there. My God, who is true, gave me this wisdom, Daniel says. So good. I love it. Drop the mic. Verse 17. If this be so which means if really all you say is going to come to pass, if you really will kill us and put us in the furnace, if all that's going to happen, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, but if not, even if he doesn't, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. There's a couple things that Rakshak and Benny are leaning on right here. They're leaning on God's ability the ability of God to deliver them from this moment. Thinking back to my story, the ability of my dad to run alongside me, he has the ability to run fast enough, to be strong enough to pick me up and deliver me from danger. But even if he doesn't, and Rakshak and Benny, even if he doesn't, what are they leaning on? Leaning on God's character. They're leaning on the fact that they can take his word to the bank, that they can trust him. They're leaning on God's character. They're trusting in his ability but then they're also trusting in his assured love for them. And, and it's not an empty faith. It's not something that has no basis because they have experiential evidence that God has been there for them before. Again, look no further than chapter 2. It's fresh in their mind. They have this evidence that God has been there for us before over and over and over. What makes us think he won't be there for us again? 
But even if he doesn't, because of this evidence, we can trust in the character of God. We can take him at his word. I think this teaches us a little bit of a lesson here. And so I think Rakshak and Benny, what we can learn from what they say is that God doesn't love us because we trust him. We can trust him because he already loves us. Let's even look at the rest of the story real quick. Rakshak and Benny, they get thrown in the furnace, right? Nebuchadnezzar says, heat it up seven times, which is just hyperbole to say, get that thing as hot as it goes, right? Turn it up all the way. I don't like these people. We're going to show them my power. They get thrown in. And then the only thing that we see from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective is that there is somebody, a fourth person in that furnace that is like a son of God. That's what we describe. And we don't 100% know what that really means. There's different opinions. And if I have my opinion, the scripture doesn't exactly say this, but if I have my thought, I'm inclined to believe that that is the pre-incarnate Christ, that that's Jesus before he came uh, as, as a baby in a manger and did all that stuff. And if that's true, think about it this way. How poetic is it? that Jesus was in the fire with them. He could have snapped his fingers and said, oh, fire's gone, and then they landed on a pile of wood, and then they're like, oh, well, I guess we're just going to get out. But no, there's Jesus in the midst of their trial, in the midst of the fire, quenching the power of fire, the fear of the threat of fire, gone, because they were strong in their faith. The actual power of fire and the destruction that it brings, gone, because Jesus was standing right with them. And then Nebuchadnezzar has to acknowledge the one true living God and say, maybe yours is actually pretty good. I don't want anybody to say anything against your God. But you see, God doesn't, didn't love them in that moment and care for them in that moment because they trusted him. They could trust him because he already loved them. And this is in opposition to as many things as you can come up with in a religious context outside of the real true living God and Jesus is that worshiping and doing something for a God or for a pagan belief, that is what gets this God to love us. That is what brings the, the, the pleasure of this God loving us or, or having his appreciation for us or something. We got to do something. It's this transactional thing to say, if you do this, then you will get my love. If you do this, then you will get my blessings. And that's simply not how our God works. We can trust him because he loves us. I'm sitting there on that bike saying, I, and my dad said, I got you, son. I could trust him in that moment, and I already trusted him. And he didn't help me because I trusted him. He helped me because he loves me. And I can trust him because he already loved me. He already cared for me. And if you are here and you believe that, you've trusted in Jesus, sometimes we just need a reminder. And that's why I love Hebrews 11 so much. It's the hall of faith because it is a reminder after reminder after reminder of the story after story after story of God's word being able to be taken to the bank, of being able to get trusted by us. It's, it's follow Jesus, the, the whole book of, of Hebrews, follow Jesus. Don't turn to the left or to the right. Don't turn to what you used to trust in. It's not worth it. It's not as good as the deal that's on the table, and that is Jesus, the free gift of eternal life. And then after that, God loves you so much that the, the things that you do for him, he'll reward you for it in heaven. It's going to be awesome. And the question is, can we believe that? Can we trust that that's real? Can we trust that that's not just a fairy tale? And this is not just wishful thinking. Well, I think in chapter 11, we have the experiential evidence of all these people in the Old Testament that say, yes, we can take that to the bank. Yes, it is real. Look no further than all the people, all the stories of faith in the Old Testament. I'm going to be honest with you for a second. Maybe this is not the most pastor-y thing to say. But sometimes when I take a look at my Bible, this is what I think. 
The people in this book were thousands of miles away from me, thousands of years ago, in a culture and in a context that has nothing to do with me in many ways. So maybe sometimes for me, this is just too far off. This is just too far away. It's difficult to relate with. Yes, this is evidence of God's faithfulness, but I just feel like sometimes I need something else. And so I have an encouragement for you guys today, something practical that you can do. If you're looking for a takeaway, if you're looking to do something with this, I have this for you. Eight words. You ready? It satisfies the the need to have something a little bit extra besides this. Stories of faith that are not just from here. I have a couple words for you. How did you come to know the Lord? Or if you say it like I do, how'd, you put those two words together. Seven. Seven words. You're welcome. Made it easier for you. How'd you come to know the Lord? We have stories of faith in this room, in this church by the hundreds. That's what Hebrews chapter 11 is for, reminding us And to quote the author of Hebrews, time would fail us to go around this room and to talk about the stories of God's faithfulness in our lives. How much more evidence do we need to quote them again? What more do you want? We have all the stories of faith that we need if we simply ask a question. How'd you come to know the Lord? I have another one, just in case you don't like that question. Maybe it's too awkward. Maybe, no, I don't want to stand in church for a few minutes and ask the person next to me that I sit next to that I don't know, how'd you come to know the Lord? You don't want to do that. Here's another question. What has God done in your life? It's a different one, okay? How'd you come to know the Lord? I guarantee you'll get a lot of good stories. What has God done in your life? You'll get another ton of stories. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the podcast that we have as a church, the Stories Collective. I think that's a good first step because you know what it does? It shows us, without us having to do anything except press play, that there are stories of faith, reminders, evidences of God's goodness, that it is true that following Jesus is the best way to live life. And it's reminded to us over and over of these stories. And so a good first step is to listen to the podcast, to to press play. And I think the logical next step is for us to ask one another, to engage with one another, or excuse me, to connect with one another, that's the right word, to connect with one another in that way and ask each other, what has God done in your life? How'd you come to know the Lord? This is, I believe, what the author of Hebrews is really trying to get to here in chapter 11 in his hall of faith. Remember, consider, appreciate Jesus. Because those stories of faith that we could share with one another, those are stories of what Jesus has done in our life. And it's worth it. And then I think the next encouragement, so that's the practical, that's what you can do. That's what I would like you to do. That's what I should be doing. That's what we should be doing. Why? Because here's a little bit of a vision cast for you. What would it look like in our community, in our church, in our context, for us to live each day remembering that we can take God at his word? It's a question for you to ponder for a second. What would it look like for us to live each day remembering that we can take God at his word? I have sort of an answer, at least for me. If this applies to you, that's awesome. But for me, what it would look like is sharing those stories inspires hope because we remember all of a sudden the hope that is living inside of us. It inspires confidence in our God for the next day, for the next week, for the next year because we often forget and I need a daily reminder that God is faithful to me. I need a daily reminder that he's taking care of me and he's taking care of his people so that I can focus on Jesus because I forget sometimes. That's what it would look like, a community full of hope, a community full of confidence, a community full of purpose, And isn't that what we want? I don't know about you. I'll I'll just speak for myself. That's a community that I want to be a part of. 
That's a community that I would like to build, and I believe that that's what Jesus was saying when he's saying, on this I will build my church, the truth of his life, the truth of his death, resurrection, and the hope that it brings each and every day. And all we have to do is ask some questions to be reminded. What has God done in your life? How'd you come to know the Lord? It's not that tough, but the dividends that it pays are amazing. And then I think of, man, the outside of this building, like the church in Acts 4 who had favor with all people. The hope, the confidence, the purpose that it brings, people are going to look from the outside in and see what are those people, why are they so hopeful in a time of distress? Why do they have confidence in a time when there is no confidence to be found? Why do they have purpose when it seems like purpose is out the window? Well, because of Jesus, because we share those stories with one another, we encourage one another with that, we are connecting with one another, understanding how God has worked in our lives, and that's a beautiful community to be a part of. And that's one that I want to build, that's one that I want to be a part of, and I believe you do too. So we get to the end of this chapter in Hebrews 11. What more shall I say? How many more stories do you want? How many more evidences do you want? of God's faithfulness to his people. And so the question is answered, yes. Is it worth it to follow Jesus? Is it worth it to pursue him? Is it not just a fairy tale? Nope, it's not. It's real. It works. Hope, confidence, purpose is found in a relationship with Jesus and in pursuing him. So after I'm done here praying and we're getting up and leaving, why not ask somebody, you know, what has God done in your life? Maybe it'll be awkward, but I feel like we can get over that a little bit to be inspired, to hear what God has done in other people's lives, to be reminded, because time would fail us to go through all the stories. But it builds a community that is full of hope and confidence and purpose, and I think that's worth it, to be reminded of who Jesus is, to appreciate him, and to follow him. Mm-hmm.